its core, healthcare is about people. While the patients are always at the centre of care, that care is delivered by hardworking, passionate people that want to make the world a better place by helping others. The Clinical Excellence Showcase 2019 delved deeper into the people behind the care because it is their dedication, innovative spirit and a desire to give back that keeps our system running. These are the real people delivering remarkable healthcare. Coming from a family with medicine flowing through their veins, it almost felt like a career in medicine was chosen for him. Following his studies, Dr Tim Duncan made the decision that he wanted more from his life and embarked on a career in filmmaking. After graduating from the Victorian College of the Arts, now a penniless artist, Tim took one final job in medicine before embarking on his entertainment career. Little did he know, that choice would change his life forever. I'd like to acknowledge the Indigenous people, the traditional owners, founders and carers of this whole continent. I'd like to thank the Chief Nursing Officer of the Royal Flying Doctor Service, Sarah Black, who I believe is along here today, because nurses, of course, we all know in healthcare are the chiefs of our systems. Um, so thanks for helping employ me in that fabled <laughs> service. In fact, it was only thanks to aeromedical services of this country that I'm alive here today. And indeed, uh, three Indigenous men who had good nature and, uh, and the empathy that I needed to survive, and otherwise I wouldn't be standing here at all. This is about the last view I thought I would ever have of this world as I plunged towards a, an untimely death. But I thought being tugged back from the brink of this moment, or, or even a bit beyond, was quite a fascinating experience. And as your soul senses your life is over and you're in free fall towards that abyss, there's no room for panic or fear. Time slows down and your brain, so often jumbled and confused and inefficient, finally makes sense of everything. And not so much the meaning of life, but the meaning of your life and what's truly important suddenly becomes apparent. Last goodbyes are made and love is felt and shared with all those who have been part of your life. There's an overwhelming sense of calmness, reflection and resolve. I thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> Perhaps minus the preceding terror uh, and significant pain, um, it's, a, it's a great experience. Whilst already a doctor, Tim's horrific car accident in the outback helped crystallise his thoughts. Alone, he lay on the side of the road and fearing imminent death, he realised that he'd only live with the help of emergency medical services. It was near death that he found his life's purpose, to use his medical skills to save others. And there I was, not always as pretty as this, um, it had clearly been a, a rough journey to that point. Um, but funnily enough, when I was called to medicine, uh, I, I was already a doctor. But at that point, I didn't know why. 
as a kid, it seemed like the sensible option. Growing up in the country with, with medical parents, um, but it had been chosen for me, but not by me. It was a wonderful upbringing, and, and not only mum and dad were involved in healthcare, but also my extended family. The pressure was there to do medicine, but not the passion. Medicine was in Tim's blood. His father was a doctor, his mother was a nurse. It was the sensible choice, but it wasn't his true passion. Entrapped by the black and white way of thinking required in medicine, he yearned for an outlet for his creativity. Inspired by the movies he had watched growing up in a small country town, he realised he wanted to be the next Bruce Beresford. With the thought released unto the world, he decided to apply to the Victorian College of the Arts to study filmmaking. I went to a party once and they said, oh, you've got to come as your greatest fear. And so I went as... <laughs> I went as my dad and... That's me on the left. Um, and so I, I, was, uh, I was steadfast. I was going to get into the VCA and study film. But uh, I got to three days out from applications closing and you had to submit a cinematic application. And Dad and I were in the queue to a, a football final, as it, as it was, um, Geelong Collingwood in the 2007 um, preliminary. And... Uh, Dad said, so how's that uh, application coming along, son? And I said, well, you'll be pleased to know, Dad, not well. Uh, I have no, I don't have the foggiest idea what I'm going to do. And he said, what's the, what's the brief? I said, well, it's the dead optimist. And uh, I've got to tell a story and I just don't know what to do. And he said, all right, I've got it. There's a Collingwood supporter. He's a, a smoking, rabid criminal which is, uh, if you know AFL, that's a tautology. Um, and he gets excited at the game and he has a heart attack. Um, St John Ambulance, come and pick him up and, and whisk him off to hospital. Um, don't forget the scarf. Um, he gets to hospital and he's in cardiac arrest. Doctor and nurse try to save him, but to no avail. He flatlines. But Collingwood win the game. <laughs> and the dead optimist is alive again. And so on the strength of this application I got in, I was one of nine of the thousand applicants. Um, and it changed my life. But there was a sombre side to this story. It was the, so that was the Friday night. The Saturday night, I was working a night shift at uh, Monash Medical Centre and Dad was coming in and we were going to film the, this um, hospital scene. And so he comes in and we're getting ready to film the coming back to life. And he gets a call. His brother's, his brother also, a, well, Dad's not a Collingwood supporter, his brother, a Collingwood supporter, has had a heart attack and he's collapsed at a local RSL club. So he goes there and he's in cardiac arrest and he died. And... It was extraordinarily shocking and, and, and awful coincidence. And so the next day I went to, to Dad's and, um, and uh, we were just grieving as a family. And he said, we've got to finish this thing. 
And so despite um, sorry, hours before his brother dying of, of this, he, uh, he acted out the part. And, um, and so I got the application in. And even though I didn't want to be a doctor at that point, I thought these are incredible qualities of humanity and generosity. I thought, <laughs> I'm not meant to break down. I do, want to, I do want to be like this. I do want to be like him. So I, I sought to honour honor my dad in, uh, in storytelling. And, uh, and I did, I think. So there, from my new perch of perspective, I thought, yep, Storytelling's my game. This was quite an incredible story itself. And I discovered there are many other great stories in medicine. So in a way, they could be combined. I just wouldn't know at that point that my favourite medical story would end up being my own. So I finished film school and, unsurprisingly, the coffers were empty. I was stone broke and I needed something to fund, the, fund my life. So I thought, okay, one last job in medicine. You've, you've got the skill and let's, let's have an adventure. So I sort of looked on the map and thought, yeah, let's go to the Northern Territory. And I went to Catherine Hospital and they offered a, a couple of months locum. I wanted to go to Catherine. I'd heard it's a beautiful place. There's the gorge and it was going to be an adventure. It had a, a strong Indigenous community. And already by that stage, I felt a great admiration and respect for Aboriginal people. And that's where I first met Manuel, Manuel Pamkel, who was a patient a month or so in. He came in with severe chest and abdominal pain and vomiting, which had been precipitated by a, a, a drinking binge. Manuel arrived at Catherine Hospital with a big smile on his face, despite being painfully sick. In examining Manuel, Tim realised he needed to drain his chest, something that the junior doctor had only encountered once before. After inserting the drain, a large amount of gunk oozed out. Panicked that he'd inserted the drain incorrectly, Tim was shocked to discover it was actually coming from his chest. He soon realised that Manuel had ruptured his esophagus and was vomiting into his chest, an extremely rare medical condition known as Boerhaave syndrome which he'd only read about in textbooks. And I didn't read a lot of textbooks, so <laughs> it was lucky I, I, I had that one under my belt. But I was right. That's, that was the diagnosis. But I had a real hard time convincing uh, Darwin Hospital. Um, he were in this remote community and uh, with minimal resources and... There on the other end of the line, they said, oh, what's the, what's the CT show? It's a very rare diagnosis. I said, well, we don't have a CT here. And they said, oh, well, it's very rare. I said, yeah, but what else could it be? Oh, look, it, it's not going to be that. Just send him up on the, the plane tomorrow. I said, well, he needs to go now. There's 100% mortality if people don't have an operation for this within 24 hours or near 100%. And uh, they said, oh, it's, it's, it's very rare. We can't land on your airstrip because there's wallabies there at night. And so yeah. I said, well, what about the chopper? And they said, oh, that's $30,000 to charter. I said, well, OK. They said, oh, that's got to be for life and death. I said, well, this is life and death. Oh, no, that's a very rare diagnosis. And so the next day, they, I nursed Manuel through the night. And then the next day, they, uh, they sent the plane and um, he went off and... 
eventually, at the end of that day, they got the surgeons and he went into theatre. And for at least the next three weeks, he was uh, in intensive care, in and out of surgery. And by that stage, I'd, I'd finished my, my job at Catherine, my definite last job in medicine. And my, um, my then-girlfriend, actress Hannah, had come up to visit and we were going to tour around Kakadu and, and then blissfully go off into our creative future together. And so the last leg, of course, was driving the West Arnhem Highway back to Stewart and up to Darwin. And like any dinky-die Australian man, um, I put the cruise control up just slightly above the legal limit of 130 and, uh, despite no radio signal, tried tuning in the cricket. They were playing in South Africa and I couldn't get, to, couldn't get it and I'm fiddling with the dial and then Hannah screamed out, Timbo! And instinctively I put my hands up and swerved and then overcompensated coming back the other way and soon we were fishtailing over the road at 130. The back tyre caught the gravel and then we were perpendicular to the road and the last thing I remember was looking at the road and thinking, oh, this is, this is it. And Hannah said, it's going to be all right. I said, no, it's, uh, it's, it's not. And uh, I put my arm up and that's the last thing I remember as the road came tearing towards me. Um, I got knocked out straight away and, and Hannah describes as we rolled six times um, and ended up 40 metres off the road in long grass, upside down, me still unconscious. Blood and fuel was going everywhere and only because the fuel line had broken and had burst and it was gushing up my nose that I woke up again and thought I was in hell. Uh, it was worse than that. It, uh, it was painful and... Um, I thought the, the thing was going to explode, so Hannah's foot was stuck because the door had opened and slammed on her foot and she couldn't get out. And so I managed to get myself out and then together we got her foot out and she crawled out the boot and came and saw me and sort of gasped as I was hosing blood out of laceration in the back of my head and blood was seeping out my ears and then I was coughing up blood and couldn't breathe. And I collapsed and I said, you've got to get help. And so... She hobbled to the road and waved down this car, which just went straight past her. And it was pretty horrifying, but, you know, there's more chances. And then five minutes later, another car came past. And she was definitely in the middle of the road for this and tried to hail it and again just went, went past her. And at that point, I was lying there looking at that sky and thought, well, I'm fucked. Um, <laughs> I said my goodbyes and reconciled myself to my fate and, and then drifted off into my last sleep and thought, oh, that's it. Finally, a third car approached and slowed to a halt. Three Indigenous men approached him, one nudging him awake while the others called for help. Critical, he was loaded into an ambulance and taken to the local clinic to await a retrieval plane. He never saw his heroes again. So, are you here, three Aboriginal men? I've been looking for, for 10 years and um, I won't stop. Um, I owe them an enormous debt of gratitude. There were significant injuries um, and, uh, yeah, I was enjoying the self-diagnosis process as I was lying there. I also had base of skull fracture. That was fun. Anyway, they, uh, they, when the cavalry arrived and, and got us off to a Jabiru clinic um, and called the retrieval plane, 
they had my sats at 70% and, and one of the nurses said, I'll just turn the oxygen up and the fire. He said, oh, it's up as high as it goes. Um, and then I said, oh, can you intubate? And they said, no, nah, no, nah, we can't do that. Um, chest tube? Nah. And I said, morphine. And they said, oh, you need a prescription. And uh, <laughs> my right shoulder was, was, in, was shattered, so I couldn't lift my hand. And you can't self-prescribe, of course. Um, and I think there is a session on opiates coming up. However, they, they, they did send the, the flying doctor out and in exactly the same spot as, uh, as I'd put in manual, put a chest drain in me, reinflated the left lung and started a blood transfusion, stopped the, the blood coming out of my head and, uh, and got us up to Darwin where I ended up on the general surgical ward. And the surgeon there had looked after me, um, put another chest drain in and, um, and said, oh, look, I'm presenting a case at the Grand Round in a in a couple of hours, so why don't you come along? You might be interested. So I went, went along in my hospital gown and drip and tube and uh, wheeled myself down and there, sort of like this, um, the surgeons were in their, in their suits and ties and, and uh, nice skirts and uh, the presentation was about a 40-year-old Indigenous man who presented to Catherine Hospital with <laughs> severe chest pain, abdominal pain, vomiting, suspected Boerhaave syndrome transferred to Darwin the next day and the surgeon stood up and said, why is there such a delay getting this man from Catherine? And uh, I stood up at the back and said, oh, I'll, I'll tell you why there's a delay. And then they all looked at me, who let this nutter out of the psych ward? <laughs> I said, I was the doctor looking after him in Catherine, since fallen on hard times myself. <laughs> but they wouldn't believe me. And... Uh, and there were the wallabies on our airstrip and we don't have a CT scanner and don't have senior doctors. And they said, oh, there should be. And, and firstly, refer to the surgeons, not emergency. But they, uh, they've changed all that since this incident. And uh, we do have a CT scanner in Catherine. They do have senior doctors. Uh, they've built a fence around that airstrip <laughs> and the wallabies can't get in. Uh, and, and then I went back to my ward and... At that point, I discovered next to me in the ward was Manuel. He'd been discharged from ICU, and there he was, there I was, and I went into his room and, you know, g'day, mate, Dr. Tim. <laughs> and, uh, and we sort of talked for a while and, and made this pact, and he said uh, he'll give up drinking forever. And I said, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll give up uh, cricket. No, I can't do that. <laughs> dangerous driving and uh, maybe one day we'll see each other again so I, I spent the next eight months rehabilitating and then uh, took a plane up to uh, up to Darwin and um, and drove that road again to exercise the demons I went went to Catherine Hospital and there was a doctor who said uh, Kiwi guy said um, oh there's this Aboriginal man who was who was just asking after you I said all right where where can I find him he said oh it's a local arts and cultural center and uh, so I went down and I thought I must have a doing odd jobs or something. And uh, I went to the front and the woman there said, oh, are you the doctor? I said, oh, I'm, I'm a doctor. And they said, oh, and I come through. And they took me through and there was Manuel sitting out the back with about 70 uh, tourists from, from Germany, France, England. And uh, 
and he was there sitting there with his canvas and teaching them all how to do Aboriginal art. And I, I looked up on the walls and there were um, all these pictures he'd painted and, and awards he'd won. He'd been prolific. In this eight months, he'd turned his life around. He hadn't drunk a drop and he'd become one of the most famous artists in the, in the area um, and very successful. So they sat me down next to him and uh, gave me a canvas and I just joined in. He didn't even look at me at that point and one of the Frenchies eventually said, uh, who's this man? He is not paid for this. Uh. <laughs> and uh, Manuel said, oh, oh, everybody, this is Dr. Tim. He saved my life. And that was, you know, one of the most profound uh, experiences I'd ever had. And so Manuel gave me the, the picture he was painting at that point, long neck turtle. And so I've cherished this uh, ever since. And we've become mates. He, uh, with the money saved from not spending alcohol, he bought himself a new Nissan Patrol, not a Toyota Prado, which had just about done me in. <laughs> and uh, over the years, we've stayed in contact and done all sorts of things together. And it wasn't just me working for him that time, but I've, I've learnt a lot off Manuel. In fact, earlier this year, he played uh, the last post on didgeridoo at the Catherine Anzac Day service, dawn service with me uh, by his side. And next year, we're going to do a duet with me on trumpet. And despite this love of Indigenous health that I'd, I'd now picked up, and, and healthcare in general, again, emergency health particularly, I still had that yearning to be creative, and especially with filmmaking. And with Manuel and, and other experiences, I, I realised, well, I've got a new penchant for Aboriginal art. So there's a story in this, when I ended up with six paintings when I really just wanted one. So I wrote a story about that and turned it into a film, uh, Aboriginal Heart, which, which went around the world. And I saw how medicine and storytelling could be combined. This was a a great experience to, to get back into film, but also uh, uh, celebrate the, the cultural differences and, and similarities that we have. We shot in Broken Hill, which is where Dr. George Miller made Mad Max, got his start in filmmaking. Um, so I was sort of seeking to go down the same, the same road, and I thought, well, let's do something of this. And so I started a production company, Doctored Films, and got this film, Aboriginal Heart, into a few festivals. Here we were at Sydney where it premiered and, and soon enough it was going around the world and I was on the red carpet with Tom Hanks in uh, London. Um, and once uh, the Broken Hill newspaper got wind of this, I was on the front page of <laughs> Barrier to the Daily, Tr Barrier Daily Truth. <laughs> and as fun and, and thrilling as this was, I still had to fulfil that promise uh, that I'd made by the side of the road. Uh, for like me, in 1917, Jim Darcy, um, who was a young man who suffered severe trauma um, and, and injuries, couldn't be retrieved. It was 1917. We didn't have an aeromedical retrieval service. So it wasn't until this man, uh, John Flynn, the man on the $20 note, he, he heard this story, like a lot of people in Australia, and thought, this is, this is not right. And so in 1928, he founded what was to become the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And it's the longest continuously running uh, retrieval service in the world and the first of its kind. And so I thought, oh, that's, that's what I've got to do. That saved me. So, yeah. Um, fortunately, um, 
Well, unfortunately, fortunately, you can't just go up and say, oh, you saved my life, can I work for you? Um, you have to do some uh, requisite training. So I did my anaesthetics in, uh, at the Northern Hospital in Victoria and uh, I'd already done obstetrics in Papua New Guinea um, and then I was ready. Well, I thought I was ready. It's still been a fascinating experience. But most fulfilling, exciting, rewarding and exhausting work I've done, which been keeping me active for the last four years, um, based up in northwest Queensland working for the Flying Doctors. And it's been, um, it's been truly rewarding to be able to return the favour that was done to you that saved your life. So every day I'm thankful and appreciate the, the opportunity. I've also been able to, to use this position to be a, a medical advisor on ABC's Ask the Doctor and, and one time um, presenter. There I am resuscitating a mannequin on the tarmac. Um, it didn't make it uh, and lost its arms in the process. But films are still the holy grail of creativity and, and making a film about uh, my own story um, is the one I'd most like to do. Uh, I even gathered a cast and when I was in Darwin I, uh, I met with David Gulpilil, the great Australian actor, and, and told him the story. And he said, all right, I'll, I'll play Manuel, I'll play that man. And uh, I was pretty thrilled with this. Uh, I've got a blockbuster here and I, I was excited to go down to Catherine and tell Manuel the story and uh, I said, Manuel, I've got, I've got David Gulpilil, he's agreed to play you in the film. And Manuel said, oh yeah, I think I play myself. <laughs> But we'll try and find a, a, a part for David in there somewhere. <laughs> it is great to, to do good with my work, my professional work, and also see the benefit of telling stories and how they can make things better as well. So I'm really appreciative of your listening today and, and thank you for having me. This podcast was produced by Clinical Excellence Queensland. To continue the conversation, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify.